Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. When I watch that video, and then I think, so I think of that context where there's much hostility. And then I think of our context and I ask the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? What are we called to be as the people of God? When we talk about vocation, we're talking about the word calling. And so one of the rhythms of grace that we're talking about is this issue of calling, of vocation. And at the end of the day, our calling is to be faithful no matter what we're faced with no matter what we're in the middle of. And the persecuted church doesn't really have the luxury of our apathy. And so for them, many times in various places in the world, uh, faith is a matter of life and death, and many choose life in Christ even if it means death in this world. And in reality, we haven't listened or learned enough from those voiceless people throughout history and even in our own context. And so when you look at faith in America, in a real way, it looks so different. It looks much more like a a therapeutic model, a moralistic model, almost a deistic model of a God who is basically up there going, hey, I'll give you some great self-help tools I want you to be nice and good, and um, if you do that, I'm a distant power, I'll make your life work, and you'll be happy. And when that doesn't work for us, we get angry with God, we blame God. And yet, in the midst of a persecuted context, they don't, they don't live with that fantasy, right? They're, they're desperate that Jesus would show up. They, pray fervently, they live faithfully, they witness well. The God of that therapeutic, moralistic sort of deism, it doesn't cut it when you live in the place of persecution, but in reality we know it doesn't cut it here either. Because those of you who are banking your chips on, be nice, be good, God gives you self-help tools and he'll give you your favorite life. No, that's not working. And so this series that we're doing is really asking the kind of questions uh, that everyone around the world has to ask in their given culture, which is what does it mean to be the people of God? And for some, it is very clear and it is very costly. And in other places, it can be very confusing. But for us, these practices that we're talking about these rhythms of grace are meant to turn us towards the grace of God that's already here, but they're also meant to keep us in the story of God, creating a distinctiveness of what it means to follow Jesus in our time and our place. And so the practices of generosity and hospitality and vocation and celebration all tied together 
through hearing the word of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. They are grounding rhythms for this place and this time. And they may feel costly to us at times, but the truth is they will draw us deeply into worship and into witness for Jesus. And that is what faithfulness has always been about. Worship and witness in every culture for all times. And so when we talk about vocation, we're talking about calling. And calling, we're saying, is what is it that God is calling you to? What are you going to spend your life on? What will your contribution be to the world and the kingdom? How are we supposed to be faithful in the thousands of hours that we spend doing ordinary work in day-to-day life? Is that at all connected to your faith when you leave here and do your life outside of this building? Is it simply a necessary evil that you go somewhere to do some thing to get some money? Is it anything less than having that super sexy, fulfilling job, and if you get anything less than that, it's a complete bummer, and so you live with huge disappointment? How do we be faithful to Christ in our calling and our work in a way that leads us to worship and witness that's both transforming to us but it's also kingdom displaying, culture shaping. Well, turn with me again to Luke chapter 15. And we've been using this as our grounding text for uh, all the practices. I'm really hoping I have a voice in uh, about 10 more minutes. And the other services should be real happy about it. Um, so Luke 15, let me tell the story again. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the state. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring a fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine is dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. And meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked them what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The other brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed you. You never ever gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours who squanders your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatty calf for him. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Two brothers, both with a different understanding of what work means, of what they're called to. For the younger son, work is a curse. It is the thing he wants to get out of as quickly as possible. So he goes to his dad and he says, I wish you were dead, which is the only way you get the inheritance and takes the money and goes off to a distant land where he lives the life. A life where he doesn't have to get up in the morning, he doesn't have to be responsible, he has enough money to make all the plays he wants to make. It is what uh, the average American hopes for, that we could get to a place where we're independently wealthy. If that wasn't true, you wouldn't sell so many lottery tickets, right? Like, somebody's going, that'd be awesome. And that's what he, he hit the jackpot. Um, and he has it all. And he has pleasure. And because he has wealth, he gets pleasure. And he gets personal gain. Because people pay attention to you when you have bank. Like when you have lots of stuff, when you have enough to pay the bill. But when he loses it all, <clears throat> he has to go to work. And as he sits there in that place, it is misery to be avoided. And yet, the work itself moves him closer to reality, closer to an awareness of God, an awareness of his own need. There is something about the grind of showing up and feeding pigs that is very self-reflective. He learns all kinds of stuff about himself in the middle of work, which is also a huge reason why most of us want to avoid it, right? Because we don't want to learn so much about ourselves. Um, we can all be really joyful believers in a Bible study, right? Work is a very different place to be a believer. 
But what he has is this false self that's driving a false vision for what work is and means and what he's called to do with his life. And in his mind, he is supposed to gain uh, satisfaction and meaning from his life by having tons of cash and getting whatever he wants. And work is this curse to be avoided at all costs. Is he called to pleasure? Is he called to an independence that goes, I don't need my dad, I don't need my brother, I don't need my past? Work can promise us these false things. But there's truth here. If I could just say something about the grind of work. Because I think a lot of us see work this way. That it's a curse, it is cursed after Genesis 3. It's gonna be hard, sweat of the brow kind of thing. And yet there's something about the grind of it, of putting yourself towards hard work. Even when all your hope is to escape it, that shapes you. There's a purifying place to be in that grind. It makes you ask deep questions about purpose and meaning and ultimately God. Because work is hard, period. It's always gonna be hard. But there is a redemptive place to the grind, whether you're in school or you're raising little kids or you go uh, just grind it out 50, 60 hours a week at a job. There is a redemptive place that can lead to an awakening if you face it, if you put your shoulder to it, if you learn from it. There's much to be learned in the midst of that. But ultimately what you're gonna learn is that if you're seeing work as a curse to be avoided, you're never gonna find meaning and you're never gonna find wholeness you're always gonna be in avoidance and miserable and trying to escape to that next big bucket of money so you don't have to work anymore. You're gonna be greedy, you're gonna be covetous, right? Well then there's the elder son. Now the elder son is the kind of employee that I'd like to hire, <laughs> like Sebastian. <laughs> He made me tea. It's like British tea. I love it. The elder son has always worked, right? He is a good worker. He's dependable. He's loyal. He works hard. He's successful. He carries the bulk of responsibility. It never dawns on him that he could like just blow all this off and go party with his younger brother. He might fantasize about it, right, in the midst of work, but he's, he's too good of a guy for that. He's too hard of a worker. He can't just let that go. But for him, work has always been a way to gain approval, a way to gain position, a way 
to prove his value. And so even as he understands his relationship with his father, he looks at what he does for his father and he defines it as I'm slaving away for you. Like you owe me this. Look at all I've done, look at that dude, he's a mess and you love him. Look at all I've done. You've never seen me. You've never approved. You've never, you've never like rewarded my work. And so there's this bitterness and resentment because for him, work is an idol. It's an idol that will justify who he is and what he's done. It's the thing that he will stick before the father and go, look at my work, I'm a worthy son. Look at his work, he sucks, he shouldn't even be called. He says, in fact, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. So he's already done business and decided where that son goes. It's about his identity, it's about his position. And he uses that to elevate his own identity and exclude his brother which is what we do with hierarchy in work, which is why we climb the corporate ladder. I remember one time Eric Brown and I were at this church playing thing in Florida where the church was that funded us. And we went out on this guy's boat and I think we were just starting, so we were like 30. This guy was like 32. He was independently wealthy and he had this yacht thing and we're like, going around on his yacht and I'm like, you know, what'd you do to, to make this happen? Because I got four kids and we don't even got like a blow up raft at this point. <laughs> and dude literally turns to me and goes, some of us worked really hard in our 20s. I was like, I'm gonna throw you off your own boat. <laughs> some of us steal yachts in our 30s, so there. And I'm thinking to myself like, oh, okay. Because the rest of us were just, you know, whatever. Having lots of kids, I guess. Um, But there was this sense that I remember Eric and I just being like, wow, we really wasted our 20s. Because (laughs) this guy worked really hard. And we, we, he elevated himself so high and there was really nothing to do to like, like compete. We were like, eh, yeah. You won. The work of the elder son is proof of his value. It's proof of his worth. It's proof of his belonging. It's proof of why he's better than other people. And yet, there's still this false self that's driving a false vision of what work means. One looks really good and one looks really bad, but Jesus is telling us something here about calling. And that work plays a role in our life. We're gonna spend thousands of hours working on stuff. But it is not your primary calling. And when it gets misplaced as idle to justify you or 
as curse to be avoided. It has a dynamic effect on the core of who you are, of how you see the Father, of how you understand the Father. And that brings us really to our first call. Because both boys are lost. One's in a foreign, distant land, blowing his dad's money. The other's in the backyard, trying to justify himself before his father. Both are lost, and both are invited home. And so to come home to the father means that there is a change to the nature and understanding of work. So, so the younger son goes, I'll go home, and I'll, I'll just work for my dad. It's a curse to be avoided, but times are hard, and so I'll just, I'll just go do it there because the curse isn't, I mean, he's a pretty good employer. And I'll go back humbly and enter into this employee-employer relationship with the father. But what he gets instead is a ring and a robe and a party. He gets a kiss and an embrace. Because the first calling isn't, son, what'd you do with my money? It's, it's son, you're alive. Son, you are found. Son of mine, we must celebrate over you. We must celebrate over you. And that is the core identity that both sons forgot. They forgot they were sons of the father. First and foremost, before they made any mark on this world, they were given the mark of being a son of the father. And that's the mark that was supposed to shape everything that they did. For the older son, he gets the, a call as well. And his call is my son. First words, my son. When he talks about the younger word, younger son in verse 24, the, the father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive. When he talks about the older son, he says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate because your brother is this brother of yours, right? So now he's gonna talk, this is your brother that we're talking about. He's not, you're not the guy with the yacht and he's the guy playing at church. <laughs> this is your brother. He was dead and is alive, and we gotta celebrate. And what that calling, that first and foremost calling does is that it bears, it is supposed to bear such a mark on your soul that you go, before I am anything else, I'm a son. So the question that we always ask people is what do you do, right? I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm in school, I do this and that. But the real question is, whose are you? Who are you? And the answer is, you are a son and a daughter of God. And that is the first and foremost calling of your life. When these men stand there in the midst of losing their life, they don't ask them, hey, 
what'd you do for a living, right? They don't go, we're martyring all the, uh, you know, retail salespeople. They go, no, they're, they're attacking that core identity. Now, what does it look like not just to die and suffer for that, but to live from that place, to let that shape your work no matter what you do? The first calling that you have been called to is to be a son and daughter of the Father. And that is more important than your money and your status and your privilege. But there is work to do. And therefore, work needs to have its proper place. And the reason it could spin out and kind of become that naming idol or that curse to avoid is because we do have to spend a lot of time doing it. But the Father's house is not passive, okay? There is work to be done, but it's participating in his kingdom mission. And there are a million ways that you may do that. You may do that in a myriad of different jobs. The Father is working to bring his kingdom to bear on earth, a way of being his people in the world that shows love and service and work and integrity, that we would shape culture for good and true and beautiful things, that we would show the power of redemption in how we treat one another, that there is just a, a type of person that a son or daughter is supposed to be in the world no matter what it is they're working at, that they would reflect something of the Father's heart. It's about expanding that first calling in your life. It's not to get a stamp of approval, you're a Christian, you're going to heaven, now do whatever you want. It's to say, I have first and foremost been brought home to the Father through Jesus. And now I've been placed in various places to do work, to do good work, and to do that in a way that would expand that calling, that would be attractive to the people around me. Wherever you have been placed in this world right now, you have a calling. That calling is to live in such a way that your freedom that belonging to the Father would infiltrate your ordinary world with love, with compassion, with integrity. That wherever you have been placed, you can trust that God's got you there. Now there's some exceptions to that perhaps, and it's not that God wouldn't move you forward or doesn't want you to, to move into something that you're more passionate about. But it's to say that don't go to work and go, this is just a curse and I gotta get out of it. And don't go to work and go, and this is the hope I have that I will make my life count. But go to work is the context for you to display the love of the Father by doing good work in love with compassion and integrity. There is a third calling then, 
And it means that wherever you've been placed, you're there to bear witness. But it is to holy work. That the actual things you put your hands to, they are sacred in a sense. That you participate with God in creating human flourishing in a really broken world. So I heard this illustration the other day. Like if, when you go to the grocery store, they always give you a receipt. I've never really brought anything back from the grocery store in my life. But they still give me like a four foot receipt for my, all my teenage boys. Um, and, and that receipt reflects some things. It reflects the fact that, that I have made money somewhere that I could come and purchase food for my family. It means that there are people who somewhere grew and produced this food and then uh, overly processed much of it, and, right? And then they brought it here and put it in this store and trucks delivered it and then somebody took it out of boxes and they put it on those racks and I could go through and I could purchase it and uh, there was a nice lady there and she helped me check out and like all of that happened and I never think about it. But all that goes away and you all, we all freak out. Like when they say, hey, a snowstorm's gonna hit, try getting milk at the grocery store. Like people are like, we'll never get out of the snow. We're gonna be in our house forever. Um, But all of those place, all those items that you've purchased represent countless hours of work throughout a whole system that has been designed so humanity can flourish. You think about like the, the, the person who paints stripes on the road for a living. And you go, well, I would never aspire to that. I don't wanna do that. That seems like a menial job. Take the stripes off the road, right? <laughs> Just get rid of them and then drive on the freeway. See what happens. It's like the stripes matter. They're probably the most important thing we have in the world, right? <laughs> Because the minute anybody crosses one, you're like, bam, what are you thinking, man? It's a stripe right there. <laughs> and yet, you would go, oh, I don't want my son to be a road striper. That's, that doesn't matter. That doesn't have meaning. It's not true. Whether you are a doctor or a lawyer or you have a mom with, you're a mom with little kids, and you, you hear this because when you're a mom, you spend a lot of time with those little kids and you feel like, gosh, is my life anything more than diapers and this and that? But, but think about it. You created a human being in your belly. That's pretty awesome, <laughs> right? That is, that is really hard to do for a lot of people. <laughs> like, I've, I can't do it. Um, scientists sit there, they get petri, they can't make it happen. Like, you're participating in human miracle, and yet it does look like poop in diapers sometimes, because there's an ordinariness to that miracle. There's an ordinariness to needing gas and going to the grocery store and getting sick and going to the doctor and be glad there's a pharmacist who could sell me the right medication and uh, that there's a teacher who is teaching second graders how to read and there's a secretary at that school who calls me when little Johnny 
hits people, right? Like, like all of this matters. It's infused with meaning. And we have been robbed of that because particularly in our context, work is curse or work is idle is massive. So much so that you have a generation that is, the parents are so into their kids and making sure their kids make it uh, that bosses are talking about parents who come to their employees' job reviews, right? Because they've been doing it forever. They've been involved to make sure they got to the right school and played all the club volleyball and went to the right college, and now they're going to make sure they get the right career advancement. And, I mean, that's work is idle. And it just permeates us. Curse or idle? The truth is, we are all working in something sacred that makes humanity flourish. We're all working in a congregation of people, not just a congregation like this, but a congregation of neighborhood, a congregation of office, a congregation of school, a congregation of four people that you build a house with. And there's nothing more sacred about my job than your job. It's all holy work. We all work for the Father, for his higher purposes, not just a paycheck. So this week, as you walk out of here, someone is gonna need prayer from a pastor Love, nurture, discipline from a mother or a father. They're gonna need a home to live in from a carpenter, a pipe fixed by a plumber, life insurance, learning to read from a teacher. Like really practical things, like a boss that shows grace and demands excellence. And we all enter this interconnected, interdependent web of life. So where would your life be without people that went to work every day to make the world work? And the question is, how are you going to work tomorrow? Are you going to work to grind out one more day, hoping that finally you can just get out of this somehow? Are you going to work to make a name for yourself, to prove your worth, to worship and serve the beast, that idol of work? Or will you go to work tomorrow as the people of God, named by the Father as sons and daughters, called to display his love, his compassion, his integrity, to holy congregation of people that you work with and for and among? Will you go to participate in holy miracle, in human flourishing that can bring you joy? What does it mean to practice the rhythm of grace today that you and I are called something much bigger and more beautiful than we ever imagined.
Let's pray. Father, today we come to you and we are grateful for your work in our lives and on the cross and a work that um, we have experienced deeply if we today would claim to be a follower of Christ. So I pray, God, that as your people in this time and place, who may not get persecuted for our faith, but would we still, God, by your power, be faithful to worship and to witness of what it means to be your sons and daughters. First called home, then called to display your love and then finally called the sacred work. We pray these things would be manifested deep within us as we come to this table to celebrate your work on the cross, your sacrifice where you gave your life for us. We give you great thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.